class called Can We Trust the Gospels? This is the third week. I'm happy to see everyone here. I have a few things to remind everyone about, uh, including, uh, let's see if I can remember them. There are uh, evidence presentations that we would love for you to partake in. Uh, They are short Namely, we're shooting for like five-minute presentations of like one or two bits of evidence pertaining to a single passage in a given week that you want to sign up for. Uh, So, you know, Justin has outlined in week one the different kinds of evidence that we're looking at. And so when you're doing an evidence presentation, you would look at a passage. Uh, We'll give you access to a Google Doc that has the passage and tells you about some of the different kinds of evidence in the passage. So you can just look at that and uh, then come ready to tell us about one of the bits of evidence that you find and maybe a little bit of what you think about it or maybe what you think we might want to think about it. Um, so the, we have also a Google Doc where you can sign up for that. We emailed out about it, but we'll email out, email out that again. Um, Yeah, and then the audio, we'll just keep making that available online. So if you miss a week here or there, then you can stay caught up. Or if you want to re-listen to things again, that's on the SoundCloud and iTunes and probably Stitcher or things like that. And one more time, we'll say there will be a sequel to this course because we're only going to go so far as when Jesus gets arrested. And you might then wonder... What's going to happen? Uh, so that uh, some really crazy stuff happens after that. And you have to come back in the spring to find out what it is. And, yeah, whether the reports about it seem like they're accurate. And those are maybe some of the most exciting reports because they involve somebody being raised from the dead. What was that? Oh, dang it. <laughs> I totally spoiled it. Okay, without further ado, Justin's going to kick it off tonight. Okay, so um, I'm going to start with a brief bibliographical note. So we're drawing this information from lots of different sources. Um, it's not doesn't really make sense for us to, like, cite everything as we're talking. So if you ever have a question about where we're getting this information from, just ask. Um, but I do want to highlight one of the main sources that I have found really helpful that you might also find helpful. And it's the work of this uh, husband and wife pair named Tim and Lydia McGrew. They are philosophers who have become interested in New Testament studies, and they've got a lot of great work. You can find some, uh, find some of their stuff really easily just by looking them up on Google. And uh, tonight is definitely uh, a lot of the information that I'm going to be talking about. It comes from various places, but a lot of it is indebted to them. So um, I figure it was a good idea to point that out. Okay, so that's the end of the bibliographic note. If you were here last week, you will know that we have been talking about the infancy narratives. Uh, Last week, we spent a long time, we had a good discussion about the two different genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, and then Patrick told us a little bit about the uh, birth of Jesus. 
Today, we're going to pick up right where Patrick left off, and we're going to continue talking about the birth of Jesus and some of the things that happened immediately after that. Um, now, unfortunately, there is just so much information that we could you know, explore in this class. We cannot possibly cover it all, so we're having to select certain things and kind of leave out certain other things. So tonight, my aim is just to cover really two subjects. The first one is the census in the Gospel of Luke, and the second one is the flight to Egypt in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll begin with the census in Luke. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I'm going to read this. Um, I'm going to read just the first few verses, starting with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and pl or cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay. That's a short little passage. It's also a fairly straightforward uh, passage, at least on a superficial reading, right? It seems like it's pretty clear what's going on there. Caesar Augustus decrees that there's going to be a census, and because of this, Mary and Joseph are forced to travel to Bethlehem, and Jesus ends up being born in Bethlehem while they're there, right? But um, we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time on this tiny little passage, because there is a problem here. And it is probably the most notorious alleged historical error in the Gospels. So it's worth spending uh, a bit of time on this and kind of sorting through what is going on here. And I'm hoping that our discussion of this passage will um, serve as an illustration of the following point. Sometimes critics of the Gospels uh, will make arguments that when you first encounter them, sound really, really convincing. And you don't really know what to do with them. But even when an argument is, when you first encounter it, very, very convincing, that argument can still turn out to be entirely unsuccessful on cross-examination. And so maybe I'm being um, too optimistic here, but I'm hoping that that will be demonstrated when we look at this problem about the census tonight. Here's how I'm going to uh, proceed. So for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to kind of step into the shoes of a defender of what in this class we've been calling the untrustworthy view of the Gospels. And I am going to argue that Luke has made up this story about the census that I just read to you from his Gospel. And I'm going to try to make that argument sound really, really convincing. And for a few minutes... Things are not going to look pretty for Luke. But then, after I've spent a couple of minutes trying to make that argument as convincing as I can, 
I'm going to sort of step back into my own shoes as someone who advocates what we're calling in this class the trustworthy view of the Gospels, and I'm going to take a second look at this argument, and I'm going to destroy it. It's good to have modest goals. Um, So here we go. You ready for this? All right. I'm going to erase these now. Okay. So we just read the passage. Luke's gospel is full of historical errors. But the most egregious, or at least one of the most egregious, occurs in his account of the census. There are actually four closely related problems here. And the first one comes right from verse 1 of chapter 2. Luke says that this census was a census of the entire Roman world. But here's the problem. You see, just like the United States is divided up into separate states, the Roman Empire was divided up into provinces and territories. And when a census was conducted in the Roman Empire, it was not an empire-wide affair. It was restricted to a particular province or a particular territory. So this idea of an empire-wide census that Luke seems to be imagining is just fanciful. The first problem, then, we can call the wrong region problem, because Luke has a census taking place in the wrong region. The second problem also comes from verse 1. Luke says that this census was decreed by Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor. But the census clearly affects the regions of Galilee and Judea, right? Because it forces Mary and Joseph to move from Nazareth of Galilee to to Bethlehem of Judea. And those regions, at the time Jesus was born, were both part of the territory of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was a client king of the Roman Empire. So he answered to the Roman emperor. But he also had a certain amount of freedom and sovereignty within his own territory, which was a certain corner of the Roman Empire. And part of that freedom was that Herod the Great, it was his business to handle his own taxing and censuses and so on in his territory. That wasn't the emperor's business. And so if there was a census in that region at the time of Jesus' birth, it should have been decreed not by Caesar Augustus, but by Herod. So the second problem is, uh, we can call it the wrong person problem. Luke has this census being decreed by the wrong person. The third problem, the third problem is the big one. This is the one that has caused the most fuss for centuries this problem has just been, it's, it's a huge, all right? So the, this problem comes from verse 2. So after we get through verse 1 and he tells you about this census that was decreed by Caesar Augustus, he throws in this weird parenthetical comment. He says uh, that this census first occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria, or you might have a translation that reads something like, this census was the first one that occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's a couple of different variations Um, in English translations, that is. Okay, here's the problem with that. We know about the census that occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us about it. 
It happened in about 6 to 7 CE. Jesus was born in about 4 to 6 BCE. So the census under Quirinius took place at least 10 or 12 years after Jesus was born. But Luke seems to be putting these events at the same time. Let me say something more about how, how we know this with the dating and everything. You see, both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. And that's really important in Matthew's gospel especially, because Herod the Great is, is kind of one of the main characters in what happens in Matthew's infancy narrative, right? But Herod the Great died in 4 BCE, at which point, naturally enough, his rule came to an end. And so Jesus cannot have been born any later than 4 BCE. But after Herod the Great died, his successor in uh, Judea was one of his sons, Herod Archelaus. And Archelaus, uh, he ruled in Judea for about a decade. And then he got banished for being a really terrible ruler. And it was at that point, when he got banished, that Augustus said, all right, that's it. I've had it with these Herods ruling in Judea. We are going to turn Judea into an official Roman province. And part of the process of turning Judea into official Roman province was to conduct a census. So he sends in Quirinius and he says, do a census. So, uh, so we have Jesus being born before Herod the Great dies and the census taking place after Herod the Great's successor is banished. So not only are they at least 10 or 12 years apart, but it looks like there's very little hope of trying to pull them closer together chronologically. So this is a huge problem and we're going to call it the wrong date problem because it looks like Luke is putting this census at the wrong date. Okay. And then finally, problem number four. If you look at verses three, four, and five, it looks like Luke is imagining a census which requires people to travel to the land of their ancestors to be registered. But that just isn't how a Roman census worked. In a Roman census, people could just register right where they were, in the town where they were living. They didn't have to travel to the land of their ancestors. Um, one author who makes a big deal about this is John Dominic Crossan. He calls this, and he emphasizes, like, not only do the Romans not do this, but of course they didn't do it. Uh, he said it would be a bureaucratic nightmare for them to have everybody move, you know, to the land of your ancestors just so we could have a census. I mean, imagine, for example, if the United States did something like that today. Like, all right, we're going to have a census, and for this census, everybody has to move to the hometown of your great-grandparents or something like that. I mean, it would, that would not go well. It would be a terrible idea. So the Romans didn't do that, and of course the Romans didn't do that, right? They weren't that stupid. So the fourth problem, then, is that Luke is imagining the wrong procedure for this census. Okay. So we got four problems here. Now here's a question. Why on earth are there so many errors, historical errors, in Luke's account of the census? Well, I've got an explanation for that. Luke is making it up, and he's making it up because he has a particular theological view that he wants you to believe. You see, 
everybody knew that Jesus was from Nazareth because he was known widely as Jesus of Nazareth. But Luke wants you to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So Luke has a problem. He's got this guy that everyone knows is from Nazareth, and he wants you to think he's the Messiah who's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So what does he do? He makes up a story about a census to explain how it is that this guy from Nazareth was actually born in Bethlehem. And he, he tries, he's really clever about it too, right? He, have you ever heard people talk about how you can make a lie sound convincing by putting a little bit of truth into it, right? So he makes reference to a real census, this census under Quirinius that actually happened. It was a well-known census because um, it had caused an insurrection, actually. So a lot of people knew about this or had at least heard of it. And so what he did is he took this census that everybody had heard of and then made up a story about it to serve his theological aims. So he was actually pretty clever about it, except for the fact that he got all the details wrong about how a Roman census works. And so now we can catch him, because we know better. Okay. I will now stop speaking in the voice of a critic of the Gospels. Let that argument sink in for a minute, though. I think you can see, like, if this, is, if this were your first time encountering that challenge, and maybe it is, that's, I mean, that could be really convincing, right? You might think there's a real problem here as far as whether we can trust Luke as a historical source. But let's, let's see if this, well, this argument that definitely sounds convincing, you know, on a first run-through, let's see if this holds up under scrutiny. Uh, but actually, before I do that, let me just make sure. Does anybody have any questions about the argument? Especially, like, clarifying questions? For a lot of these things, um, uh, Josephus is the, kind of the main source, and he's usually taken to be a very good historical source. Um, I don't know if he's the only... Well, actually, I'm pretty sure he's not the only source they're drawing on. But, like, especially for, like, the, the census under Quirinius that took place in 6 to 7, that's Josephus who tells us about all of that. Yeah, so Josephus was um, a historian. He was Jewish, but he worked for the Romans. Um, he... So he, he was in a kind of an interesting position where, because there were lots of conflicts between the Jews and the Romans, uh, especially, you know, in the first century and, well, not just then. And so Josephus um, was in this interesting position of writing history for Romans, but as a Jew. And he was writing about all these conflicts between them, so he had to kind of be careful about what he said and things like that. But, um, but anyway, so he's just a really, really valuable source for... Uh, learning about the Gospels and understanding their historical context because he was writing only a little bit later than uh, the people who wrote the Gospels. And so he had a lot of sources. He was up close to those uh, events, at least temporally speaking. Um, and he tells us a lot about kind of the cultural and political context in which Jesus' uh, ministry took place. So he is a really a very valuable source. It's awesome that we have Josephus' works uh, to use when we're studying the Gospels. Okay. So here's the first thing that I want to say 
by way of response to this argument. And it's that that whole thing at the end about, uh, you know, Luke is making up a story to try to convince you that Jesus was the Messiah, but in fact, right? Okay, that whole hypothesis was was, uh, floated to explain why Luke's account of the census is full of historical errors. So if you could show that, in fact, Luke's account of the census is not full of historical errors, that hypothesis would sort of have... uh, wouldn't have a leg left to stand on, right? At least a huge portion of the data which it was postulated to explain would be kind of wiped out. So the main issue here is these four points. Is Luke really making mistakes here, or are these not actually mistakes? That's really what it comes down to. And I think to keep things sort of organized and not confusing, we're just going to take these one at a time, Starting with number one. Does that sound good? Okay. So the wrong region problem. The problem of uh, Luke imagining this census being empire-wide when in fact Roman censuses, sensi, sense, I don't know. We're not, Ro- uh, we're not empire-wide, right? They were restricted to particular provinces and territories. There's a couple of ways that one could respond to this. Some people have argued that actually during the reign of Augustus, there was an empire-wide census. And some people have thought that there's even some evidence for this, uh, a couple of clues here and there. One version of this view says, well, look, maybe it went like this. Maybe Augustus decided he wanted to do a census of the entire empire, but he did it province by province, so that you have one big census carried out over a long period of time composed of a bunch of smaller censuses where, you know, you've got one in this province and then in this province and then in this and so on, right? That's an idea that some people have floated, and there's something to that. That could be right. But there's another way to deal with this first problem, and it's to simply argue that, look, Luke isn't even claiming that the census was empire-wide. Let me tell you how this is supposed to go. So, um, where's Luke? Uh, If you look at Luke 2, verse 1, I was reading to you from the NIV. And the NIV translates verse 1 as follows. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's the NIV, entire Roman world. Does anybody have an English translation that says something different than entire Roman world? All the world? Yep. Okay, so that's the ESV. So ESV says all the world. Uh, Anybody got anything else? Um, So we've got at least two different uh, English translations now. We've got one that says... Uh, entire Roman world, one that just says all the world, doesn't say Roman. Um, What's going on there? Well, I think Austin's on the right track. I think maybe it's time to look at what it actually says in Greek, Uh, because now it's important, right? It's not always important. Well, I don't want to say it's not always important. It's not always, like, really important to be able to look at the Greek, right? Obviously, you can can do a lot with a good English translation of the Bible, and, and we do every week in church. But sometimes... It really helps to be able to look at the Greek. So here's the phrase that is being translated by some Bibles as all the Roman world or the entire Roman world, and in other Bibles as something else. Pasan tein oikumene, I think. 
Thanks. <laughs> this word right here is a universal quantifier. It basically means all. This is a version of the definite article. And this word means things like world, earth, land, things like that. Inhabited region. Okay, cool. Excellent. Inhabited region. Nice. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So, um, translated literally, then, this means something like all the earth or all the land, something like that, right? Or perhaps all the inhabited region, like Patrick was saying. Um, okay. Notice what isn't there. Roman. Well, why, why does the NIV then put Roman in there? Why do they say the entire Roman world? Well, the, I mean, the answer is basically this. When you're translating a text, you're also interpreting it, right? Because you have to decide what you think it means before you can try to express that same meaning in another language. And the people who translated the NIV just decided that when Luke used this phrase, what he meant, the, the region he was trying to refer to in that context using that phrase was the whole Roman Empire. But because, especially because he didn't actually say that, he didn't say Roman Empire, there's room to disagree about that. And you might think, well, maybe that isn't the region that he was referring to with that phrase. Maybe he was trying to pick out a different region. And actually, this is a really ambiguous kind of a phrase, right? Any, almost any uh, uh, sentence that has a universal quantifier in it is ambiguous because quantifiers can take different scope in different contexts. So let me give you an example. In English, think about the word everyone. Every is a universal quantifier. Now, if I say, can everyone hear me? What does everyone mean? Yeah, like everyone in this room or something like that. If I say, everyone can vote, what does everyone mean? Yeah. Yeah, something like all U.S. citizens who are of a certain age, stuff like that, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. And isn't that interesting how complicated these sort of unstated restrictions can be? And yet we speak this way, right? If I say everyone is human, now what am I talking about? Like the entire, you know, population of the Earth or something like that, including people on the International Space Station. If there were people on Mars, like, who had traveled there from here, it would include them, too. It's just weird how quantifiers work, uh, universal quantifiers. Um, but anyway, the point is, really ambiguous. And I think similarly, like, if you were to translate this, and some people have argued you could translate this as all the land, that's, that's ambiguous, right? You could use the phrase all the land to pick out all different sorts of regions. And one thing you could do with it is perhaps refer to the entire kingdom of Herod the Great, which was just one territory of the Roman Empire. And so it's possible that that's all Luke meant, that he was just saying, look, the whole territory of Herod the Great, a census of that whole territory. That makes sense? Okay. So there, I think, are at least two feasible solutions to this first problem. One is maybe there really was an empire-wide census, perhaps one that was conducted province by province, but on the other hand, it's not even clear that Luke was saying that. And so it's not clear that it really is, even is a problem. All right. Good. We're ready to tackle number two.
Yeah. Rick. Rick. Oh, we'll get to that. Now, Bethlehem is part of Herod the Great's territory, though. So just to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll talk about number four. Uh, But okay, number two. Wrong person, right? So census in Herod the Great's territory should have been decreed by Herod, not by Caesar Augustus. What's up with that? Or as Patrick would say, what gives? (laughs) This is one of these cases, and there are a bunch of these, um, where what looks at first like it might be a problem for what we're calling the trustworthy view turns out to, th- to be a point in favor of the trustworthy view. Um, I love these. Because <laughs> it's like, you just, okay, never mind. All right. Um, yeah, and uh, Tim McGrew likes these, too. He's pointed out a couple of these cases. But anyway, okay, so here's what's going on here. Uh, it's weird, isn't it, that Luke has Augustus ordering the census instead of Herod. But guess what? If you read Josephus, Josephus tells us something really interesting about what was going on with Herod at this time, right around this same time. He says that Herod got in trouble with Caesar. He got on Caesar's bad side. And he got demoted. Well, okay, what happens when Herod gets demoted? Well, it might be that some of the usual privileges he had in kind of running his own territory, he might lose those, right? Because Caesar's not happy with how he's been running the show. And so Caesar might think, all right, I'm not going to have him doing his own census or his own taxing or whatever at this point. And actually, even beyond that, um, I'll say a little bit more about this later, but there is reason to think that precisely when Caesar is unhappy with how somebody, one of his client kings, is ruling one of his little sub-territories, that would be the moment to come in and do a census. It was a way of taking more direct control over that territory. I'll say something more about that later. I'm leaving that a little bit vague at the moment. But... um, Suffice it to say that Josephus gives us a detail that he doesn't in any way explicitly hook up with anything that Luke says or with any sort of a census. But nevertheless, it looks like that detail helps to explain this curious detail in Luke. So we have an undesigned coincidence between Luke and Josephus. And if you don't remember what undesigned coincidences are, You're welcome to go and listen to the audio from our first class where that is explained. Um, So this, I think, far from being a problem, uh, point number two turns out to be a point in favor of uh, Luke's accuracy as a historian. And while we're on the subject, there's another neat little undesigned coincidence between Luke and Josephus in this general territory. See, Josephus tells this story about, um, about an oath of allegiance to Caesar that the Jews in Judea had to make, again, around this same time, around the time of Jesus' birth, maybe a little before. And you might wonder, what was the occasion? Like, why? Why this oath all of a sudden? Well, it turns out that... Um, making an oath was one of the things that was done as part of a Roman census. And so it could be that this oath Josephus is talking about was part of the census that Luke is talking about. 
And neither of them make any connection here, right? Luke only tells you about the senses. Josephus only tells you about the oath, right? Neither of them are like, you know, drawing this connection for you. Neither of them are even seem to be aware of it. It looks like it just sort of kind of happened on its own, right? It's an undesigned coincidence. Or at least it's a candidate undesigned coincidence. Okay. So that's kind of cool. Or at least I think that's kind of cool. Um, all right. Any questions about number two? All right, let's take on number three, the big one. The one that causes all the fuss. What are we going to do about the fact that this census that Luke is talking about apparently took place 10 or 12 years after Jesus was born? That seems like a problem. Well, I'll tell you. Um, actually, I've got three different solutions for you. The first one I think is bad and I, I, false, but it was pretty popular at one point, and so I'm going to mention it. Because, you know, you'll probably see it around, so. The, the second one I think is pretty good and might be right. In fact, the only reason I think the second one isn't right is because I think the third one is right. The third one's even better than the second one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, here's solution number one. And actually, there are more than three possible solutions, but those are the, these are the three that have the most going for them. The first possible solution is that maybe Quirinius was governor of Syria twice and that there was a census both of those times. So we know about, you know, in 6 to 7 AD, he was appointed as a governor and there was a census. Josephus tells us about that one. But then the proposal is, and Luke's telling us about another occasion where basically the same thing happened. Quirinius was governor of Syria uh, also around the time Jesus was born, and there was also a census at that time. And that might be true. Um, I think it's really speculative. And, I mean, there are lots of things that... I, could be said about this as things that things that could be said you know by way of evaluation but i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one let me just mention one thing i think the main reason that this proposal was at least at one point popular was because um of an inscription that archaeologists found and that some people thought favored this view so um inscriptions are like when archaeologists find like some writing that's engraved into an object like a pot or a, a rock or something um and there was this one inscription that talks about someone we don't know who it is because that part of the inscription is missing but it talks about some unknown person and it says that this person was appointed uh, by caesar as governor for the second time and they were given syria and some other place and so some people thought hey look that looks like you know that could be quirinius because, you know, that at least some confirmation of this thought that, hey, look, maybe Quirinius was governor of Syria twice, right? Unfortunately, though, um, actually, if you correctly interpret what the inscription is saying, it, it doesn't actually say that somebody was appointed governor of Syria twice. It just says it was, somebody was appointed governor twice. And at least the second time they were given Syria. Maybe also the first time, but the inscription doesn't say that. And beyond that, I mean, we don't even know if the inscription is about Quirinius. Might have been, might not have been. 
And even if it was, we don't know that Quirinius's other uh, governorship was around the time Jesus was born. In fact, there's some reason to think that it wasn't. And even if all of that's true, we don't know if there was also a census at that time. So I think this is a really, really speculative solution. Might be right, but eh, I don't know. Not my favorite. Okay, here's a better one. Um, Look at verse 2, the one that causes this problem. Uh, The NIV reads this way. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So that word first, that is translating... uh, the word protos, protos, is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, the lexical form is protos, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and that word does usually mean first. That's what it normally means. Here's what that word looks like. But it doesn't always mean first. And its second most common meaning is actually before so, for example, in um, John 1.15, John the Baptist says that Jesus was before him, and that's actually translating a form of the word protos. So this can mean before. And it turns out that the, the rest of the grammar of Luke 2, verse 2, is flexible enough so that one way that you could translate verse 2 is like this. The, uh, the, sorry, how does it actually go here? Oh, yes. Uh, This census occurred before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Or, this census occurred before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Those are both defensible translations of Luke 2.2. Now, notice, if you translate it that way, that solves the chronological problem, right? Because if the census under Quirinius occurred 10 or 12 years after Jesus was born, then it's true to say that this census that Luke's talking about, that happened when Jesus was born, was before Quirinius was governor of Syria, right? So that translation definitely solves the chronological problem. But you might wonder, why on earth would Luke be making that point at all, right? He's telling you about this census that happened while Jesus was born, Why does he bring up the fact that this was before Quirinius was governor of Syria? I mean, it was also before Nero was emperor of Rome. It was before all sorts of things, right? So why is he bringing this up? Well, here's the thought. Um, I mentioned earlier that the census under Quirinius was notorious. It was widely known because it had caused an insurrection. So the theory is that, oh, well, what Luke is doing is he's ironically, trying to make sure that you don't confuse the census he's talking about with the one under Quirinius. He's saying, so there was this census, and by the way, it wasn't that one. It was before the one that happened under Quirinius, right? It wasn't that one. That's possible. Actually, that's more than just possible. I think that's, that could be right. That's a pretty good solution to this problem, I think. But it's not the best solution. I'll tell you about the best solution. Um, and that is as follows. Once again, the, this third solution uh, proposes an alternative translation of verse 2. And this time, the words that 
are of interest are the first two words in the verse. And those words are haute apographe. What does that mean? That means this census. Or does it? Okay, so the word apographe, we need to look at both of these words. Start with apographe. This can actually mean at least two different things. It can mean census, or it can mean taxation. And you might actually have an English translation that talks about a taxation instead of a census. Some of the English translations do that. So here's the question then. Um, Which way should we translate it in Luke? Is he really talking about a census, or is he talking about a taxation? Well, here's the thing. I mean, he's, he's almost certainly talking about a census, but he might be using the word to mean taxation, because the reason this word had that double meaning is that uh, a Roman taxation always started with a census. A census was the first step. They would have all the heads of household come and register and say, okay, here are all the people in my household, here's all the land that I own, and then they would take that information and decide how much they were going to tax each person. And then they would come back around and collect a tribute, right? They would make people actually pay their taxes. And so the word for census, apographe, uh, also came to be used as a word for the whole taxation process that started with a census. And so you can translate it as taxation. That's going to be important, but just hold on to that thought for a minute. And now let's look at the word haute. So... Haute, as I said, means this, right? It's a demonstrative. But it's really, really similar to another Greek word. In fact, all I have to do to turn this into a different word is move around these little marks up here. So if I take this accent mark here and put it on the last syllable, and if I take this little breathing mark here and flip it around so that it's curved the other way, now I've got a different word. It's the word aute. It's a pronoun. And the way that it's being used in this sentence means that the sentence no longer reads, uh, this apographe first happened, blah, blah, blah. Now the sentence reads, the apographe itself first happened, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Is this making sense right now? Okay. Now here's an, an interesting factoid about ancient manuscripts of the Gospels. They didn't have any of these accent marks and breathing marks. They were also written in all capitals, and I've written this in lowercase, but ignore that. Other than that fact, if Luke wanted to say, um, this census happened, blah, 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 it would look like that. And if Luke instead wanted to say, the census itself, blah, 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 it would look exactly the same, just like that. So one admissible translation of Luke 2.2 is the apographe itself, census, taxation, whatever, first happened when blah, 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 or something like that. Okay. Now suppose we do translate it that way. Then what is Luke saying? Well, it sounds like he's saying, look, around the time Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus decreed that there would be an apographe. But the apographe itself, as opposed to the decree, that happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay? Now, it doesn't matter at that point when Quirinius was governor of Syria, because he's not claiming that that was simultaneous with Jesus being born or before Jesus being born, right? 
Is this making sense so far? Okay. Now, you probably, though, you are, you're probably uh, wondering the following. Why on earth would Caesar Augustus decree that there be an apographe in, like, I mean, we're talking, like, somewhere in 6 to 4 BCE, and then they don't actually do it until 10 or 12 years later? Like, what's up with that? What's that? Because Herod's terrible. So this is actually, this is the cool part. This is the part where it gets really exciting, at least for me. (laughs) Because it turns out there's a really neat story that has the apographe going exactly like that, that ties together a whole bunch of loose ends from Josephus and from Luke. And it's because of how neat that story is and the way it ties those things together that I think this is probably the right solution to the problem. So let me tell you how the story goes. I've actually already told you part of it. So you remember earlier I mentioned that Herod the Great got in trouble with Caesar Augustus right around the time that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, right right in that territory, right? Um, Well, uh, I also said that there's reason to think that at that point, Caesar might think, uh, I'm going to come in then to your territory and I'm going to do an apographe. And it wouldn't have been just a census. It would have started with a census, but the intention would have been to carry out an entire taxation process. And the reason for this is because that would have actually been part of the process of turning Herod's territory, taking it from a mere territory to an official province of the Roman Empire. So the thought is like, look, maybe um, what happened here is that Caesar decided, I'm not happy with how Herod's been ruling. I'm going to go take direct control, turn his territory into an official province, okay? Um, But here's, here's the interesting thing, right? So here's something else we know from Josephus. Josephus tells us not only that Herod uh, was demoted around the time that Jesus was born, but that he didn't stay demoted for long. He actually quickly got back on the emperor's good side. So it's reasonable to think that maybe when he did that, Caesar would call off the apographe and stop the whole process of turning Herod's territory into a province, right? He might think, okay, I'm not mad at him anymore. We're just going to drop this whole thing. Okay, that's the proposal. And so then the apographe goes on hiatus. Now, they may have got partway through it. Because remember, if, if we read apographe as taxation, it's referring to this whole process that starts with the census. Maybe they started it. Maybe they carried out the census. So Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem for this census. Maybe they got partway through the census. Maybe they got all the way through. I don't know. But they didn't get very far, and then they dropped it. Then what happens? Well, Herod the Great died shortly thereafter, right? He died in 4 BCE. And then he was replaced in Judea by his son Archelaus, right? And then Archelaus reigned for a decade or so. All of this we know from Josephus. And then, like I said earlier, what Josephus tells us is that after about a decade, Archelaus gets in trouble with Caesar Augustus. And Augustus says, that's it. I've had it with these Herods ruling in Judea. They're terrible. He banishes um, Archelaus, and he says, this time, for real. I mean... Uh, So we know for sure, Josephus tells us that this time he does turn Judea into an official Roman province. 
the this time for real part is part of the hypothesis because the hypothesis is that he tried to do it before and then changed his mind, right? Okay, sorry, I just want to be clear about what is hypothesis and what is data. Um, okay, anyway, and then we know from Josephus that uh, at this point, Quirinius is sent in to do an apographe. And then the hypothesis says, okay, so Quirinius takes the apographe that had been started and dropped back at the time that Jesus was born and finishes it, right? So, for example, if they got through the census or part of the census, maybe he takes that information and uses that. So what we get is an apographe that is decreed when Jesus is right, right around the time Jesus is born a little bit before. You know, maybe they start like the initial stages, it gets dropped early on, gets picked up again a decade or, or, or so later where the actual taxation part is carried out. And the thought is that that's what Luke means when he says the apographe itself Right? And he's contrasting it with the, the decree that there be an apographe. No, um, it was partly under control of the governor of Syria, but it wasn't actually part of Syria. And actually, this is one of those things. Think about how complicated the politics is. <laughs> if you're just making stuff up, you're going to get stuff wrong. Because it's hard, right? How does Luke know that the governor of Syria had any kind of authority in Judea? Well, it helps if he's actually telling you what happened and not just cooking up stuff, right? Shall we do problem four? See if we can get that one taken care of? All right. Problem four was this problem about uh, why does Joseph and Mary, why did Joseph and Mary travel all the way to Bethlehem from Nazareth of Galilee, right? That's a few days of travel on foot. Uh Roman census didn't require that, right? That was the problem. It, the Roman census didn't force people to travel all the way to, you know, the land of their ancestors. All right, so here I think there's a couple of things that we could say. One is that when you look at the passage, it doesn't tell you the following. It doesn't say that, um, well, okay, so it's clear about this. It seems clearly to be true that Joseph travels to the land of his ancestors because of the census, but what isn't clearly true from the passage is that that was a Roman requirement. So, for example, some people have thought that maybe this was actually a Jewish custom in Palestine. Uh, you know, we know the Jews cared a great deal about their tribal affiliations. And in Palestine, uh, it doesn't matter where you were, you were either already living in your ancestral territory or you weren't far from it. And so it, maybe it was just a custom of the Jews in Herod's territory that whenever a census came around, they wanted to make sure they were registered in their sort of tribal homeland. That's a possibility. It's speculative, but it's, it's a possibility. But there's something else that I think we should take a close look at. Um, have a look at verse 3. Here's the NIV. It says, And everyone went to his own town to register. Okay. Now, if you read that verse in isolation, and you didn't know what came next, and you'd never read verses 4 and 5 and so on, would you get the impression that people were traveling long journeys to the lands of their ancestors for this census? I don't think I would. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like people are just signing up at their own, you know, their own home, right? Or their own city, right? Where they're already living. 
Yeah. And so, and, and then you might think, well, but wait a minute, but we do have verses four and five. And if you keep reading, it, the verses four and five make it sound like Joseph is doing what everybody else is doing. And what Joseph is doing is traveling a long distance to the land of his ancestors. Okay, um, sure. But we know this, that it's certainly not the case that everyone is doing exactly what Joseph is doing, right? Because not everyone is traveling to Bethlehem, for example. So there, e even if there's a sense in which Joseph is doing, like a, it's a, like an instance of what everyone is doing, um, we have to ask, well, to what extent and in what respects is what Joseph doing, you know, the same thing that everybody else is doing? And one possible answer, I think, is just that, well, Joseph is going to register in a town that he regards as his own. And if that's just the sense in which what Joseph is doing is the same as what everyone else is doing, that doesn't require anybody else to be traveling to the land of their ancestors. Now, that does leave this question, why does Joseph travel all the way to Bethlehem? If people weren't required to do that, and he's got a pregnant wife, like, what is going on here? Why does he? And, I mean, I don't know. Um, some people have suggested that, look, it's the land of his ancestors. Maybe he's got family there. Maybe he had an inheritance coming his way there. Maybe he was already thinking, like, yeah, I want to be in Bethlehem. And then the census comes along, and it's like, okay, well, now's the time, if any time is the time, right? Um, so I have no idea why Joseph would choose to do that. But why on earth should I know why Joseph would choose to do that? Right? I think it's enough in this case that there are plausible speculations. And it isn't like a point against the view that we don't happen to know what was going on in Joseph's head in the first century. All right. That's what I've got on problem number four. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if registering with Mary meant anything other than Mary went with him when he went to register. I don't know if she's, like, also being registered. Maybe she was. Um, they did take betrothal very, very seriously, the Jews in the first century did. Um, and this was a point that Patrick, I think, maybe didn't quite get to last week, but he was going to, so we're giving him credit. Uh, that You actually had to get an official divorce to break off a betrothal. Um, so it could have been that she would count as, at this point, a member of his household and everything. But I'm not really sure about that. Uh, it's a good question. Yes, right. So this is a good point. So Patrick points out that, well, look, if, if Joseph had family or an inheritance or something in, in Bethlehem, uh, why is it that when they get there, they have nowhere to stay, right? Um, and I think that's a good point. One thing one could say in response, and this at this point I'm just speculating off the top of my head here, but for whatever it's worth, one thing you could try to say in response is, well, maybe Joseph thought he was going to have accommodations when he got there, and that Precisely because he had family or something there, he thought he was going to have accommodation, and then somehow this fell through. Um, so, I don't know. You know, that's a thought. Yeah, good. Okay, so let me repeat this so we get it on the... Uh, so Ian just pointed out that um, actually if you uh, look into um, what kind of a place that Mary and Joseph were probably staying in, it, it wasn't an inn that they were being thrown out of. It, the, what the claim is is really that there wasn't room for them in like the the person part of the house, and they had to stay with the animals, like a lower floor or something like that. Is that? Yeah. Similarly, some people, yeah, some people have argued that um, 
it may be that the reason Mary and Joseph wanted to stay in Bethlehem initially, because when they come back from Egypt, they first start heading for Bethlehem before they get sidetracked into Nazareth. Some people have suggested that the reason for that is precisely because it seems like the appropriate place for the Messiah to be, to come from, right? To, to be like the Messiah's hometown. Okay, good. Um, I want to try and quickly do a little bit of Matthew chapter 2. Uh, so, quick run-through of what happens. I mean, hopefully you read this, and probably you've all read it at some point or other. Um, you get the story about the Magi who come following some some kind of an astronomical anomaly, taking it as a sign that there's been uh, a new king of the Jews born, and they come to Jerusalem asking about this, right? And then Herod, uh, Herod the Great gets wind of this, and... Uh, overreacts. Um, He sends soldiers to go kill all the babies in Bethlehem and its vicinity uh, so that he can ensure that this newborn king is destroyed. Uh, But Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus get away because they're warned by an angel and they run off and hide in Egypt. Then when Herod dies, they come back uh, and they end up settling ultimately in Nazareth. All right, so that's like the rundown of what happens in Matthew chapter 2. What can be said by way of like historical assessment of what's going on in this chapter? Well, first, um, here's a question about the Magi. If you were to go back to first century Palestine and then travel east where the Magi were supposed to have been from, right? Magi from the east. Would you find places where there were people like that? And as it turns out, yes, you would. So in places like Persia, there were these people called Magi who studied the stars and who would have been inclined to interpret like a weird celestial phenomenon as um, sort of uh, like a sign of, of earthly and uh, events, like perhaps the birth of a new king. And given that Judaism was so widespread, they might very well have been in contact with some of these messianic ideas in Judaism. And so might have heard about like this Messiah that the Jews were awaiting. And so when they see a weird star or something, they might think, hey, this could be the sign of this Jewish Messiah that all these Jewish people are talking about. And where would they go if they wanted to find out if there was a new uh, Jewish king that had been born. Well, a natural place to go would be Jerusalem, kind of like the hub of Jerusalem, or sorry, of Judaism. Um, Anyway, so there's definitely something that can be said in terms of like the historical plausibility of the bit about the Magi. When we get to Herod slaughtering the infants, there's a big complaint that critics tend to raise. And it's just that Matthew is the only record that we have of this event. Nobody else seems to talk about this. Luke has an infancy narrative, doesn't talk about this Herod slaughtering the infants business. Josephus tells us all about Herod the Great and things that he did while he ruled, doesn't say anything about this slaughtering the infants in Bethlehem. And the argument is like, look, surely if that had happened, more people would have mentioned it. It wouldn't just be Matthew. But only Matthew mentions it, so he must be making it up. Okay, Um, let me say something about this really briefly. Um, First of all, I think this is a terrible argument. 
Uh, and one reason it's a terrible argument is it's what's called an argument from silence, where you're like, okay, look, this one person reported this, but these other people didn't, so probably it didn't happen. It turns out there's reason to think that that kind of argument is actually really unreliable. And I'm not going to go into that right now, but I said something about it at the end of the very first day of this class, so you're welcome to go and listen to the podcast. Um, But I'm going to run right over that and, and instead say something more specific about this particular argument from silence. And that more specific thing is this. Um, so we're talking about Bethlehem, okay? We're not talking about a major political, religious, you know, center like Jerusalem or Rome or something like this, right? We're talking about, by comparison, like a little village that's off the beaten path, So, how big of a slaughter was this? Like, what kind of a scale of a disaster are we looking at here? It could have been something like two dozen babies. And so, I think it's just, I mean, that's horrible. You don't want to go and slaughter two dozen babies. But let's keep in mind that the scale of this event was not like national disaster kind of a thing, okay? And moreover, Herod the Great did stuff like this, unfortunately, all the time. In fact, I've got something to read to you. So Josephus, oh, hold on, I gotta get my notes out of my, I always forget to take my notes out. Josephus uh, tells us about how, like, Herod the Great was so awful that a delegation, after he died, a delegation went to um, Rome to complain about how terrible a king he was. And Josephus tells us a little bit about what they said. So here's, uh, I'm going to read to you a little paragraph from Josephus. He says, this delegation complained of Rome, or complained to Rome of Herod that he, quote, was the most barbarous of all tyrants, that when a very great number had been slain by him, those that were left had endured such miseries that they called those that were dead happy men, that he not only tortured the bodies of his, of his subjects, but entire cities, And he shed the blood of Jews in order to do kindness to others. That, in short, the Jews had borne more calamities from Herod in a few years than had their forefathers during all that interval of time that had passed since they had come out of Babylon and returned home in the reign of Xerxes. So, here's here's the thing. Let's say you're Josephus, and you're writing an outline of the career, the rule of Herod the Great. You're not going to be able to include everything. You're going to have to select some things, and you're going to leave some things out. And if this guy did one horrific thing after another, is the slaughter of a couple of dozen babies in this little town going to make the list? Well, it might, but very easily it might not. It might be one of the things that you just leave out. Um, so it seems to me that this argument is just goes nowhere. Um, I think that... Uh, the fact that Matthew reports this event is much better evidence that it happened than the fact that other people don't mention it as evidence that it didn't happen, is one way of putting it, though perhaps not a very perspicuous way of putting it. <laughs> okay. A few other things here, uh, and then we'll be done. 
So carrying on with this narrative about the flight to Egypt, it's worth pointing out, uh, there are a number of things I think that could be said in favor of the historicity. So that was blocking another objection, but here are some things that count in favor of this uh, flight to Egypt narrative. First of all, about the slaughter of the infants again, it's hard to overemphasize how perfect a fit this is for Herod the Great. This is exactly the sort of thing he would do. Because this guy, Herod the Great, was really, really paranoid about any possible usurper, right? If he, if he thought his family, I think, I hope I'm remembering this right. I might be confusing him with one of the other Herods on this point, but he was a terrible guy for sure. Um, I, I, but I think it was Herod the Great who, who actually put family members to death when he got suspicious that they were plotting against him, right? So, so this thing, this thing about hearing these rumors of a newborn Jewish king and deciding the best way to handle that is to just kill a bunch of babies. Exactly what he would have done. So this story is absolutely a perfect fit with what we know about Herod the Great. Okay, a couple other things. Have a look at verse, uh, well, verse 21, verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 2. Here's the NIV. So he got up took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. By the way, this is Joseph is the he. I should have mentioned it. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is a really neat little passage, because it intersects with some things that we know about history from other sources. So first of all, in that passage we read that Archelaus has replaced Herod the Great as the guy who's reigning in Judea. That's correct. That is exactly what happened. Matthew gets that right. More than that, Matthew says that Archelaus is reigning in Judea. Notice he doesn't say Archelaus has been appointed king in Judea, or Archelaus is the new king in Judea. He just says, reigning in Judea. That's exactly right, because we know from Josephus that Archelaus, although he was permitted to sort of act as though he had the title of king, he was never actually given that title by the emperor. So he was kinging, is the way Tim McGrew puts it. And that's actually, that's like in Greek, it's like the verb form of the word king, basileo. Um... So uh, Luke gets that, or sorry, Matthew gets that exactly right. If he had said it differently, uh, or at least some of the ways he could have said it differently, it would have been wrong. But he gets it right. And then notice, where does Joseph go to get away from Archelaus? He goes to Galilee, right? That wouldn't have worked if Herod the Great was still ruling, because Galilee was part of Herod the Great's territory. But after Herod the Great died, his territory was divided up among three of his sons. And while Judea went to Archelaus, Galilee went to Herod Antipas, who we'll be meeting next week, I think. In person. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this is interesting because, look... That's something it would be easy to get wrong if you were just making stuff up and you didn't know what you're talking about, right? It's only because after Herod um, dies, his territory was divided up in a certain way. It's only for that reason that Joseph could get away from the guy ruling in Judea 
by going to Galilee. Wouldn't have worked just like a year before. Okay. And then also notice like, okay, so why? He, he's afraid, right? It says when he, hears that Ar- when he hears that Archelaus is reigning in Judea, he was afraid to go there. And this angel warns him away and everything, right? Or what's going on there? Well, it could just be Archelaus is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a terrible guy, so we're leery about Archelaus. But it turns out there's actually a better explanation than that. You see, Josephus tells us that uh, this story about um, there was a conflict that broke out during Passover as soon as Archelaus took the throne in Judea. And it resulted in Archelaus mercilessly slaughtering a whole bunch of Jews and then sending all of the other Passover pilgrims away. And he said, leave, you know, get out of Jerusalem. And Joseph is coming back into, the, uh, into Judea from Israel right around this time, right? Because he comes back when Herod the Great dies. And so right around the time that Archelaus takes the throne. So around the time that this massacre happened. So it could be that what's going on here is that as he's approaching Judea, there are Jews leaving uh, Jerusalem, passing him on the road, telling horror stories about what Archelaus is doing in the temple. And naturally, Joseph is afraid <laughs> to go there. So we have there a neat little undesigned coincidence between Matthew and Josephus. And then if I can make one more point. Notice how all of those little things that I just mentioned, most of them aren't explicit in Matthew. Matthew is just telling a story. And these things kind of just get bumped against in passing as he's telling his story, right? He's not, he doesn't look like he's trying to be careful about making sure his story lines up with the facts. He's just sort of telling a story, and it, it, it feels like it just sort of naturally fits with the facts. And that's what you would expect if Matthew is telling the truth. If he's making up a story that he wants to sound convincing, you might expect that uh, if there is agreement with the facts like that, he would make a bigger deal about it, right? It wouldn't just be this thing that kind of happens naturally on its own. Um, Okay, so those are some thoughts about Matthew chapter (laughs) 2.